You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, good morning and welcome once again to Every Nation Greater Toronto Area. Um, I'm Sheila. If we haven't met, I hope we do get to meet one day in real life. We are continuing our um, spring series called Unstoppable where we have been journeying through the book of Acts. Now, this is Unstoppable Season 3, because two years ago we did Season 1, last year we did Season 2, and now we are in Season 3. Before we read our chapter for today, well, part of our chapter for today, let's consider this. How did a small religious movement among rural Jews spread across the Roman Empire? causing upheaval and spiritual transformation wherever it went. That is the very question Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is trying to answer. The first half of Acts tells the story of the early years of the Christian movement from the point of view of a variety of characters. The second half, however, follows the missionary journeys of one remarkable person, Paul, from the Bible Project. So we are in the second half, and we've been walking with Paul through his missionary journeys as he's bringing the gospel beyond Jerusalem and into Asia and lots of interesting places, and we're going to go somewhere different today. Um, We're going to read some of and walk through Acts chapter 19, and in this chapter we're going to see some of that spiritual transformation and also the upheaval, the spiritual transformation, yes, but also the upheaval. I gave this message the title, The Word and the Way. So um, the word is that spiritual transformation part. And uh, this is what Acts 19, what we'll read. We'll read that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, Acts 19, verse 20. But there was also upheaval, the way The way that people were living out their lives and walking in a new way brought upheaval. And it says in verse 23, we'll see in a few minutes, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. These are two themes we see through the book of Acts. The word of God continues to increase. Number of disciples are are uh, multiplied. The word spreads through the region. And in fact, we're going to see this morning that All of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. But we're also going to see that where the the word went, also there was upheaval. Not everybody liked what they heard. Um, And so we're going to watch how the way that lives were lived, the decisions people made, not everybody was happy with, but we're going to see that the word of God prevails. Um, Paul said, what is this way? Uh, this was maybe what early Christians called themselves, the way it's debatable why they chose this. Maybe it was because Jesus himself said he was the way. Um, Paul said of himself, I persecuted this way. I was trying to catch them and um, get them to jail, men and women alike. Um some will see today some people spoke evil of the way and there was a lot of disturbance because of those who walked in the way. 
So the word and the way, they're going to bring transformation in some lives, and they're going to bring confrontation, confrontation and upheaval in other lives. So let's begin reading Acts chapter 19, starting with verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul laid his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Uh, this, The first verse talks about, you know, brings back to our memory, the guy, Apollos. And um, two weeks ago, Rich was talking about Acts 18, and he was explaining to us about Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, great believers, saints in the early church, and how Apollos was um, preaching, and he was he he was he believed some stuff, but he didn't know everything. And Priscilla and Aquila, I think it says they explained the way of God to him more clearly. Seems like these first few verses, Paul was doing the same thing. He met a people, a group of people who were actually. They believed they were on the right track, but they needed to know a little more. They needed to know there was something else, and it was Jesus. And, and upon that, they were baptized. They were filled with God's Spirit. They prophesied. They spoke in tongues. Um, let's keep reading, starting in verse 8, or continuing. You know, um, I gave the slide person the wrong scripture all on me. So let me just read, and you cannot read along. <laughs> Even though that was a really good verse from Acts chapter 1, not 19, let me read. And he, being Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, and reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, for two years and three months, and maybe more than that, daily, Paul spoke boldly, reasoned, persuaded, talked about the kingdom of God. Some people liked it. Some people didn't. But all the residents of Asia at that time, Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile alike, heard the word of the Lord. I don't know what you think. One of the really great things about going through a book of the Bible a little more slowly is that you actually... If you try, you actually um, pay attention and think a little bit. So I've been thinking, I wonder what Paul talked about for two and a half years every day. Uh, I'm going to guess he took the Sabbath off, maybe, maybe not. But every day in the temple, Paul reasoned and persuaded. And I, I thought, I wonder what he talked about. Um, we know some things from a couple of weeks ago. Lucas was teaching us from Acts 17, and they were calling him a babbler and uh 
they, yeah, they called Baal. Um, oh, because he was advocating for foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, we know that part. He was talking about Jesus. He was talking about the resurrection. What we just read now was that he was teaching about the kingdom of God. So Jesus, who he was, the resurrection, but also the kingdom of God, how we're going to live out this life here and now. Uh, my thought, I was thinking, um, you know, Paul actually only had the Hebrew scriptures, of which he was an expert. And uh, so I wonder, what did he say for those two years and three months? And I imagine Paul, um, you know, he, he only had the Hebrew scriptures. He didn't have this because he hadn't written part of it yet. Um, so I imagine, okay, what? What was he doing? What was he teaching them about? And and in my thought, I thought, well, he's taking these Hebrew scriptures and he's explaining the way of God more fully. In fact, it brought me back to um, a point in the book of Luke, same author, book of Luke. After Jesus rose from the dead, he's walking along the road and there's these two guys, Cleopas, and we never get told the other guy's name. Maybe that's one of the questions you can ask in heaven why only one of the two men was named. But he's having a discussion with them and they said, haven't you heard, you know, what's going on? And and uh, then he kind of enlightens them. And Luke 24 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them all the scriptures in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So in my imagination, Paul, an expert in Moses and the Mosaic law and the prophets and all things Hebrew scriptures, he was explaining to them, see this, you know, story of, about, you know, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember there was a fourth guy in the furnace with them? Could it have been Jesus? I don't know. But Paul was explaining the way of God to them more clearly. Well, now things are starting to heat up in this story, and we're talking about spiritual transformation. We're talking about some upheaval here, continuing in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this wasn't like some plan Paul had where you know he was, you know, okay, give me some handkerchiefs, and I'll play over, pay over them, and we'll send them off to people, and they can give their financial donations. I don't know. It, uh, for some reason, in fact, Luke calls this an extraordinary miracle, and Luke had seen a lot of miracles up until this point, but there was something really unique about what was going on right now. I don't know, extraordinary, inexplicable, that somehow things that touched Paul, when a sick person received that or somebody filled with evil spirits, there was healing and deliverance. Not an everyday occurrence, but pretty cool nonetheless. Then, some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, one translation says naked and bloody. So imagine the spectacle. Here are these guys saying, 
I don't know if I want your Jesus, but I do want that power. And the evil spirit within somebody goes, this guy goes, I know about Jesus and, and Paul I recognize. And then he beats them up, chases them out. Well, the next verse, of course, makes sense with something so crazy going on. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. I can imagine both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here's our series of events, extraordinary miracles, a, and yet some guys with a desire for that power without a desire for the Savior. Um, and then, of course, this, you know, this uh, wild incident of these, the evil spirit attacking these guys and running out of the house naked, and, and news traveled fast without social media. News traveled fast. Fear fell upon them, and others responded by divulging their own practices burning their own books. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, those getting saved and filled with God's spirit, um, those Paul preaching in the temple, some pretty um, interesting spiritual things going on, healing, deliverance, but also some a little wildness there. The, the word of the Lord, it was prevailing. It was continuing to increase. So finally, the last little bit we're going to read today. Believe me, I have skipped a whole lot. We're not reading the whole chapter, but we're getting a lot of the word today. About this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business, that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with human hands are not gods at all. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be de deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. The disciples would not let him. Later on, verse, uh, by the way, if we had read more, they ended up, this crowd was so riled up, they ended up for two hours plus screaming, great is Artemis, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Artemis. Well, later on in verse 35, somebody's trying to calm the crowd. And he says, 
Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image? Doesn't all the world know? This is what everybody knows and everybody believes. The guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image. You know, doesn't all the world know? Well, yes, actually, all the world did know. So, you know, maybe in school you learned about the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, one of them was this temple of Artemis. Artemis in the Greek, Diana, the Romans called the same, the equivalent goddess. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest building in Greece. In fact, they say it was four times larger than the um, the Parthenon. It housed not only the, the temple, or not only whatever to for the worship of Artemis, but it also um, housed many fine pieces of artwork, sculptures by renowned Greek artists, um, paintings, and it attracted thousands of visitors every year. So when they say it was bringing wealth into the city, it wasn't just these guys making their silver, um, you know, statues for people to take home as a souvenir or to worship in their own home or city or wherever they were going in Asia. But actually, you can imagine the wealth of people every year making this pilgrimage, this journey into Ephesus to worship at this temple. The other super fascinating thing to me was the temple served as um, a bank. In fact, some say it was the first bank in the ancient world or the first bank in Asia because wealthy people would bring their stuff to store in the temple and it would be um, protected by the deity so nobody would steal their things. So people, especially rich ones, would leave their money in the sanctuary. They'd actually receive interest and the priests would actually use some of this wealth to lend to other people. So it is considered one of the first banks as we think of banking today. So Ephesus, it was the center of religion. It was a center of culture and it was a center of finance in the ancient world. And since we're talking about worship and wow, sounds like some idolatry. There's nobody better to turn to than Tim Keller. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from those ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its own priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios, stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and our society? Demetrius said this, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. So it's easy to compartmentalize and imagine, uh, I've been to the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> because you all know that there's a replica there, and in it there is uh, a statue and that was a replica, and, 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 and I can imagine what it would be like, what it was like in those days to go in and not just look at the artwork, but worship at these statues who were there 
gods. And uh, what what are the centers in our day and age? Well, Toronto's certainly certainly a center a center of culture and finance. Some things just never change. And so the confrontation and the upheaval as so what you don't know is that the doorbell just rang. Okay, this is real and live. Um, so the confrontation and the upheaval as the gospel was going forth in Ephesus was actually hitting their idols. How about those sons of Sceva? They didn't want Jesus. They wanted his power. And the silversmiths and the people of Ephesus, they wanted that they wanted their wealth and their status and their career and their way of life and their religion not to be challenged. Ecclesiastes, the author said, there is nothing new under the sun. And folks, today, there is nothing new under the sun because God comes in and he's going to challenge those things where we want to find our our significance, our security, our definition of what good religion would be. So nothing has changed. Quite a number of years ago, um, well, okay, let me back up just one step here. So I, th- I read this chapter, and I've known for quite a number of weeks that I had to talk about, uh, if, what are we in? The book of Acts, <laughs> chapter 19. And I thought, how can you talk about the book of Acts without talking about idolatry? And then I thought, and I can't talk about idolatry without being honest first with me, about my own idolatry, because I don't think it ever goes away. Oh, I think I can face it sometimes and make different choices and repent when I consider something more important than what God ever wanted it to be for me. I get that, but I just didn't feel like I could talk about idolatry with a clean conscience without letting the Lord just do a little reminding in me. And so I've been thinking about this for quite a number of weeks. And um, I remember the first, uh, well, most of you know that a little over a month ago, Tim Keller passed away. And um, Bert and I started listening to Dr. Tim Keller sort of by accident in 2007. He hadn't published a book, um, but we stumbled across a podcast and we listened to it. And then we listened to a lot of other things. And one of the things, if you've listened to or read Tim Keller for any length of time, you're going to get confronted with idolatry, with the concept of idolatry. And in that time, this was, uh, you know, my kids were teenagers and one little one and I began to see where my children, the idea of family and a good, okay, get this, a good Christian family. Now, is there anything wrong with a good Christian family? Rich will often remind us that idolatry is about making a good thing into an ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with desiring a good family. And I heard that as I listened to Tim Keller preach on idolatry, but I realized how easy it had been to slip into my very identity being tied up with my kids. So when they succeeded on the inside, I was succeeding. And when they failed, I was rattled. And when your four-year-old throws a fit on the Target parking lot, and somehow it reflects on you because everybody's looking at you. And I realized how much of my identity was tied up in being not just a good mom, but maybe even a perfect one. And I let the Lord in there. And probably sometimes that idol still 
you know, rises up because I probably still want to have perfect children. Oh, maybe I do. Two of them are in this room. So maybe I do have perfect kids. Grin, grin, grin. But um, I read this. Another mom writing, my desire for completely successful and happy children is selfish. It's all about my need to feel worthwhile and valuable. If I really knew God's love, then I could accept less than perfect kids. Their success was my success. Their failure was my failure, shame, and embarrassment. So family, here's a few others. Uh, Tim's good at this. Here's a few things from Counterfeit Gods. Romantic love is an object of, of enormous power for the human heart and imagination and therefore can excessively dominate our lives. How about money? Money is one of the most important and most common counterfeit gods there is. When it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what's happening. It controls your anxieties and lusts, and it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. Kind of on that same theme, Jesus warns people about worrying over their possessions for Jesus, greed is not only the love of money, but excessive anxiety about it. How about one more here from Tim? More than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and value rest in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. Remember the sons of Sceva today. Turn back the page. So we see what was happening. We see that that crazy incident where they wanted the power, but not the savior. But other people saw what was going on. In fact, some of them were believers. And when they saw what was going on, fear gripped them. But not just the kind of fear that, ooh, that was scary, but something gripped their hearts. When they saw this is what idolatry looks like when we want something. We want some kind of power. This is the outcome of it, some destruction. And what did it say they did? They actually took their their books, they disclosed their own practices. They took their books and they burned them. In fact, dealing with our idols often comes at a personal cost. I don't know why Luke wrote in there that it was 50,000 pieces of silver, the value of what they burned, but I do know this, that when we see idolatry and we see, wait a minute, that's inside me too, and we make a decision to live a different way, there's cost. There's cost involved. So I told you about years ago, and then I've been thinking, okay, what's the thing that still plagues me? And uh, one day, a couple days ago, I thought, I'm not alone in this, but one of the things that plagues me is my idolatry of comfort. Now, comfort can look a lot of different ways. Um, you know, uh, it can look a lot of different ways. It can be, you know, where you're physically relaxed at the spa, but it can also be the place where there's no worry, where you're not frightened or upset, where there's no emotional pain. Um, it can be that you have all the things in life to make you comfortable. It can make your life easier, that can make your life pleasant. It can be, comfort can be where you're in a state where you have all the money and possessions you need. So I got to thinking, um, let me think about when this was. My kids were young and Bert and I were living in Calgary and we had, we had always hoped one day to fulfill the Canadian dream and own a home. And uh, that was going to be... <laughs> 
that was going to be at that point in time seemed like if it was going to happen, it was going to be because of a miracle from God. And a lot of things unfolded. And finally in Calgary through a lot of really cool things and that story for another day, we owned a home and uh, we were raising our three kids there. And I was driving one day in the car, I was driving into the Rocky mountains to go meet friends, just me and the three kids. I'm driving the car. And I had this just thing, this inkling on the inside of me. And I prayed and I said, Lord, I love my Calgary life. I love living here. I can't imagine there's anywhere better, but I don't ever want to hold more tightly to something that you have given me than what you would want me to do. And it wasn't a whole lot of time later that God actually asked Bert and I to let go of our cozy little house that he gave us pretty miraculously. And, uh, and take a risk and move to Nashville, not knowing what was lying ahead of us. And man, it just hit that, that thing that, but, but I thought I was going to have a comfortable life in Calgary because it was a pretty comfortable place to live. And then off we go and we moved to Nashville and we were in a three bedroom apartment and a lot of our neighbors were young adults and little, you know, it was a little noisier anyway. Uh, but I remember being in my kitchen and I had been reading the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. And it said, uh, it, it said in Hebrews chapter 11, it was talking about Abraham, how God called him out of that was what was familiar and comfortable, his home. And he called him away, and Abraham didn't know where he was going to go. And Abraham was willing to live in tents. And I thought, okay, Lord, once again, that I didn't know about idolatry, and I didn't even couldn't even have given it the name comfort. But I knew that I had been comfortable, and now I no longer was, and I didn't know what the future held. But it did say about Abraham, and really, I don't know what this means. But it says in Hebrews, therefore, God was not ashamed to be called as God. And I thought, okay, Lord, I had a dream of owning a house and you gave us one and we've left it. We've set it aside. And I said to the Lord, I'd rather be in the center of your will than own all the things in the world that would make my life comfortable. And so off we lived and we bought one house there. And that again was its own miracle story. And then we built a house. And Bert and I had always dreamed of building a house. And so we built a house and it was really fun to do together. And we were living there with our kids. And one day I was out walking with my walking buddy. And uh, I said to her, you know, when we lived in Calgary and I told her, you know, I felt this like God never wanted me to hold on to something more tightly, even if it was a good thing. Remember, good thing, ultimate things. God never wanted me to hold on to something more tightly than what he would have me. And when her and I were talking about our houses and could we live in them once we like were old, like really old, you know, well, you know, we could do this and that so we wouldn't have to move out. Of, I mean, we were talking about getting old. That's what we were talking about. And I said, you know, I, 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 this has stuck with me forever praying this prayer. And, and then I said to her, I remember, in the, in the time in our apartment, when we first moved to Nashville, let God, I'd rather be where you want me to be, even if it's in a desert living in tents, to know that I'm in the center of your will. Because whatever that means, that you wouldn't be ashamed to be my God, I don't know what it means, but my heart is there. And then you all know those of you here in our home know that we are no longer in Nashville. And, you know, that was a hard decision to make. And one day, in my journal, my kind of scrappy, not a formal journal, just, a, ah, 
I can't believe I'm doing this kind of journal where you just write everything that. I wrote this, my personal quote, comfortable is much easier than courageous. Comfortable is much easier than courageous. I went, okay, Lord, you're calling us to move. You're calling us to do that. I had a really comfortable life and a comfortable home. But I knew in my heart I wanted to live in that place of courage. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, we sing songs. Um, and I think sometimes, Lord, when I sing these songs, please don't let me be a liar. Um, you know, you give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Uh, really? Uh, there was there was somebody in our church a, while, a number of years ago who walked out when we sang that song. This person didn't like it because surely God would never take anything away. Oh, I can testify that sometimes it's a good thing, but he doesn't want me to hold on. He doesn't want me to hold on too tightly. That when it's time to let go, I choose to live in a tent. Um, I've never lived in a tent. I'm exaggerating. You got that. <laughs> Here's just one more. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would lead me. Really, really, you want to go somewhere where you have to live in that kind of trust with God? You know, when God's putting his finger on our idols, it's it's not because he's going to take your house away. You know, um, you may or may not know, but we are actually living in a house right now that Bert and I own. But when we went to leave Nashville, I wrote in that same journal, will we ever own a house again? And should it matter? Because that thing of comfort and the comfort that we in the Western world, in fact, <clears throat> for a lot of us in our church, we haven't always lived here in Canada. I think everybody in our church probably has lived in some other country Beyond exaggeration, even though Bert and I are back home in Canada, we've lived somewhere else. So, um, and sometimes, you know, we, we have to look at our own heart and think, what was it about that pull? What was it about that pull to somewhere different? Uh, God was probably in part of it. I hope he was. And maybe some of what my desires for what I consider to be a comfortable life. Anyway, one thing, just one thing, my own idolatry that still will creep up. And I think is, then I think, is my life any different than the neighbors? Do I still want the same things my neighbors want? Am I striving after what they want? Because when something different happened with those sons of Sceva and their idolatry was identified and other people went, my heart's in that same place. What happened? The word of the Lord spread. I'm going to close quoting our own Lucas Maciel, because this struck me a couple of weeks ago when he preached. You know, it's so easy to be just lulled into a certain lifestyle, and God always wants us to be conscious and aware that our heart is where he wants us to be. So Lucas reminded this of, the, of this, be attentive to culture. What things in our culture pull us into that place that where something good could tip into something not so good. Recognize the seeds of truth. And finally, in our own hearts, not just in the community around us, but in our own hearts, challenge the idolatry, the idols of this age. Thank you for listening. And um, I hope there's something on the inside of you where the Lord uh, was reminding you 
to not take those good things that we have, things like comfort, uh, prosperity and wealth, and, and put them in a place where God would never have them to be. Because what do we want? We too want to be like the book of Acts and see the word of the Lord spread. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.